turn with me to Psalm 139. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. We're given the fact that this is a psalm or a song with the heading to the choir master, and we're told that this is a psalm of David. David, the king, being its author. With that said, let me read. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this as it is, your word spoken by David, ultimately spoken by the Holy Spirit for the sake of the church. We pray that we would capture some sense of what it is that David is here singing, that you are a God who knows, a God who is near, a God who is good, and may we desire to see your glory in justice and in grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing to notice about this psalm as we look at Psalm 139 is as we get this little heading, these capital letters, to the choir master, a psalm of David, one of the things you need to know is whenever you get one of those superscripts, that's actually a part of the original psalm. That is part of the inspired text of Scripture. So we don't want to skip over it, though we don't have to spend much time on it. Who is the choir master? I have no idea. He is the master of the choir. 
Who is David? We do know that. He is the king. He is really the typical king, and what I mean by that is the one who types the Christ most clearly. You look to David and you see the coming son of David, the greater son of David being the Christ. And so David is the one writing. Now David is writing this psalm, we believe, in the face of being pursued by wicked men. David, if you know, was pursued on more than one occasion by his enemies, run down and hidden. He was run down by Saul and his men. He was run down by his own son and his men. David suffered much at the hand of the wicked, and he is suffering under the hand of injustice from sinful men as he writes this psalm. He's in a great time of suffering and loneliness and anxiety. And in the midst of this suffering and anxiety, David takes time to contemplate who God is. I want you to stop and consider that for a minute. David actually sings in this psalm about doctrines that we often consider intellectually only, but David is not considering them from an intellectual standpoint. David sings here about God's omniscience, omni-all-science knowledge, the idea that God is all-knowing. He sings about God's omniscience. He is singing about God's omnipresence, omni-all-presence. He's everywhere present. All of him, everywhere present, all the time. He sings about his omnipotence, that he's all potent or powerful, that he creates, that he decrees what will be, and it is. David sings about the Lord as our creator and our provider. He sings about the Lord's justice and holiness and the Lord's grace and mercy, but he does it as one who's worshiping. He isn't thinking about these theological categories as one who's intellectually curious, who wants to be smarter or more well-spoken than his friends. David is thinking about these theological categories doxologically, in other words, as a matter of praise or worship. And he's showing us how to worship and adore our Father who knows us and cares for us. Even as David is suffering himself, even as David is being mistreated by unjust, wicked men, David is teaching us, by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, how to sing in the midst of suffering and injustice. He's teaching us how to sing. He's teaching us how to think as Christians, to think worshipfully about who God is. See, you are not gonna likely suffer in the way that David is suffering here, You're not going to be a king running from people trying to overthrow you. You got that straight? You're not David. But you are going to suffer under the hand of a more bitter enemy than Saul could ever be, the hand of Satan, sin, and death. You are going to suffer the consequences of sin, the consequences of the fall, the consequences of death that show up in all of our lives. The curse upon us strikes us all. So in the midst of that moment, of that season, David's teaching you, you ought to be thinking about who God is. He's not teaching you to rehearse. He's not teaching you to rehearse your thoughts of how good you are, to rehearse your thoughts of what you could have done differently to fix the situation, to rehearse the thoughts of how the future might turn out in the way you'd like it to if you just do this or that. He's not teaching you to scheme 
or plan to make things happen. He's teaching you to sing about who God is. He's showing you how to adore God. And so as we look at the psalm, I want us to think about our Father who is in heaven. Who is God? That's the first thing I want to look at. And second, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to who God is? Those are the two major points today. Who is God as David is presenting him here? Now as we look at that first point, who is God, I want us to think of him as he is toward us. Who is he as he is toward us? And I have three subpoints. I'm gonna walk through these. First, he is our father who knows. Second, he is our father who is near. And third, he is our father who is good. So let's look at God being our father who knows. The first point, God is our father who knows us. Look at Psalm 139, verse one. Oh Lord, here he is addressing the Lord by the name he's given to Moses, the name of our covenant Lord, the one who is. This means more than just, some scholars wanna say this is just his covenant name. It is his covenant name, but it means more than just his covenant name. It encapsulates him as the one who is. He is. The way Aquinas summed that up is his existence is his essence. Right, what do you mean by that is he just is. Like you're becoming, you were something, you're becoming something else, he is. Essay is that word in Latin for to be. God just is. He isn't becoming something, he wasn't something before, he just is. That's important. You have to grab hold of that. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now that's a beautiful and frightening statement about God's omniscience, isn't it? Oh Lord, the one who is, the one in whom all things hold together, the one apart from whom I would come unraveled at the seams, really disintegrate. You have searched me and known me. He sees me and knows me. This means he knows every thought and action. He sees and knows the wickedness in my own heart that I don't see. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? God can. You can't. He sees what's in your heart that you don't see. Look at what it says in verses two and three. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Lord, you know all my activity. You discern my thoughts from afar. Think of this. Far before I even have my thoughts, he already knows them. He knows all my thoughts and actions. He knows my thoughts before I think them. He knows my motives in a way that I can never know them. God sees and he knows. Look at verse three and four. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. See, he knows the path you're going down. He knows you're lying down. He is acquainted with all your ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Listen, I don't even know the words that are going to be on my tongue before they are often. Sometimes as they come out, I think, oh, no, and I want to get them and bring them back in. That's how limited my knowledge is of even myself. But the Lord knows before it's even on my tongue. He knows what I'm gonna say before a word is even on my tongue. I just wanna think about the omniscience of God for a minute. Just try in some way to apprehend this. That's the best we're ever gonna do is, is just get our fingers on it, some little tiny edge of it. I mean, what do we really know? 
We think we're incredibly advanced. You guys are aware of that, right? Man, we are the most advanced of all men, and I guess in some ways that's true. Yet we still know so little, so little. Jason and I often talk about how when we visit folks in the hospital, here's the phrase we most hear from doctors. We're not sure what's wrong. We hear that phrase more than we hear any other phrase. Listen, our doctors today know more than any doctors have in human history, and I'm glad I live in this medical moment and not in the medical moment 50 years ago. At the same time, the knowledge of our greatest minds is still limited. We don't understand small things like viruses in which we wish we did. A deadly virus breaks out and the world cowers. We don't understand what happens with psychiatric disorders. No idea. We make observations and draw conclusions from generalized observations, but at the end of the day, we have no idea. You know why? We don't even really understand the concept of consciousness at all. Really don't. We know we're conscious, but we're not sure why. Why do humans have language and dogs don't? You can try to talk to your dog, but that dog is not talking back. No matter how much you love it, no matter how much you put a name on it and treat it like it's a child and like it's a human being, it doesn't talk. And it isn't thinking about you the way you're thinking about it. I hate to break it to you. Your dog is not contemplating, why do humans speak the way they do? We really don't know why we have consciousness that way from a scientific standpoint. Listen, we know there are laws of physics, laws like gravity or entropy, but why are those laws in place? How do those laws come to be? From the sciences, we don't know. Molecular biology's all but ended Darwin's theory of evolution, and by that I mean the form of evolution in which we say that one species evolves into another species. Darwin's tool, if you will, for explaining how one beak on a bird is longer than another beak may have some merit, but his tool of going from that point to saying one species becomes another has utterly failed. We now know that the cell isn't simple, we know that the math of time and chance producing what we see now just doesn't add up. We know that one species does not contain the genetic ability to become another species. Yet, we still cling quite tightly to our idolatrous religions, don't we? And yes, you just heard me call evolutionary biology an idolatrous religion. It's like a fundamentalist religion, in fact, if a scientist challenges it, he's run out on a rail as a heretic. But scientists are supposed to challenge hypotheses, aren't they? Not that one. We just don't know as much as we pretend to. We just don't. Yet God knows all that there is to know in one divine thought. Have you heard that? He knows all that is because he decreed all that is. There are no surprises. There are no risks for God. God does not learn something. God knows. There is no change, no growth, no maturing in God. God is and God knows. He knows. Now, it's not enough to say that God knows everything. It's not enough to say that. It's important that we carry it where the psalmist does. Look at what he says in verse five. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. He sees, I want you to hear this, he sees and knows everything. He sees and knows everything in such a way that he cares for you. His hand is upon you. Listen, beloved, his thoughts are toward you for good. It is not just that God knows you, it is that God cares for you. He is your Father who is working all things together for your good. Look at how David responds to that in verse six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. It's just all too much. God is unbounded in his omniscience 
And as a creature, it's more than I can possibly comprehend. I can't wrap my mind around it. I can barely grab a hold of the hem of the garment of this thought. He knows my thoughts before I have them. And he's knowing all this for my good. Look, I don't even know why I do what I do. You know that's true of you. You don't often know why you do what you do. You have your theories, your suspicions about your motives, but at the end of the day, you don't know. Paul will talk about that. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Wretched man that I am. God is our Father who knows and cares for us. Secondly, God is our Father who is near. Look at verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? It's like a rhetorical question. There's nowhere to go that your spirit is not because you're ever-present. Or where shall I flee from your presence? I can't. I can run to the ends of the earth and I cannot flee from your presence. If, listen to his examples. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the, the depths of the earth, Hades, hell, whatever you want to call it, you're there. No matter how high, the highest height, the lowest depths, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, where are the wings of the morning? The morning flies up in the east, doesn't it? That's the way of saying that. If I take the wings of the morning, comes up in the east, or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's to the west. So as far as east is from the west, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. It sounds a lot, doesn't it, there, like Paul in Romans 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? And then he goes on to list things, and he says, neither height nor depth, neither width nor length. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is ever-present and always has us by the hand. Your right hand shall ever, right hand shall hold me, shall lead me. You're everywhere present. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. See, God is omnipresent. All of him is present everywhere. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around that, can we? We're not good at being present where we are. Listen, my wife can come into the room sometimes and I am there and I'm not there. You guys follow me? I'm not even good at being fully present in a room I'm in. But God is all of him, everywhere present, all the time. He is not the things that have been made, but he is the maker who is everywhere present with his things. He's omnipresent. But don't lose what David's saying here. This isn't just a dry fact about God being everywhere present all the time. He wants you to know that God is always near to you. He's with you. Even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. He's saying, listen, no matter where I'm hiding, you're there with me. You're near me. God is like the hound of heaven, one poet said. Wherever I go, there he is, searching me out. His long arm reaches wherever I am. No matter how far I wander, I am never beyond his reach. If I reject him, I find there is no country too far to which I can flee from his justice. There is no cave deep enough nor rock large enough to cover me from his wrath. If I am his, there is no place too far for him to make a diligent search for me and to find me. There's no distance too vast for him to traverse for my good. 
In fact, the infinite one clothed himself with the finite for me and for you. The creator assumed the nature of the creature to save you and me. So you are never outside, never too far from his saving power. No matter how distant the Lord seems, no matter how dark the dark night of the soul, the darkness is never dark for the Lord. For him, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with him. Some of you are suffering the dark night of the soul. God seems distant, uncaring, not for your good. You wonder if he's there. And David says to you, even the darkness is not dark to the Lord. The night is bright as the day, and the darkness is as light with him. He's right there with you. He's got you by the right hand. He's leading you. So God is our Father who knows us and who is near to us. Thirdly, God is our Father who is good to us, seeks our good. Verse 13, you've been hearing me say this already, but look at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you form my inward parts. Now notice that word for. That word for is connecting or tying this to what precedes. I can't go anywhere apart from God. I know God knows everything about me for, here's the thing, you created me. It must be true because you're the creator. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You think of a woman who's knitting something, who's weaving a tapestry. There's an intentionality, a purpose to it. You did that with me. There was a purposeful carefulness to this. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now listen, we don't normally sit around and say, I'm going to pray today to give thanks to God for how wonderful I am. I'm fearfully wonderful, in fact, is the way the Hebrew says it. You ever think about that? I am fearfully wonderful. Don't go post that on social media. No one will understand what you're saying. They'll think you're some kind of positive thinking guru. What's the point here? The point isn't that God looks down at you and says, look how morally righteous you are, you have it all together. Look how gifted and talented you are, you have it all together. The point is he looks down and he sees his design in you. I made this person this way for my purposes, and my purposes are good. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a kind of parallel language to being knitted together in your mother's womb, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. The Lord knew what you were gonna be before he even formed you to be it. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knew you before he created you. He knew you in the womb, even in the darkness of the deeps of the earth, because he created you. God is our creator. He has woven us together as someone who is making a tapestry. In other words, you were carefully and specifically designed. There is purpose in the way in which God made you. There is intentionality. There is no error on God's part. That's true from the womb to the tomb. He made you the way he made you for his purpose. Yes, the fall has frustrated the creation. It has frustrated you and me, but the fall has not frustrated God's good purpose for you. 
God has created you with a specific purpose and intentionality. Look at verse 16 again. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God wrote every one of your days in his book before there was yet one. He not only created you, he providentially governs your whole life. He has decreed all that has come to be. Now you might say, I wish God had made me like that person over there. But you need to embrace the fact that God made you exactly as he decreed in his good purpose to do so. You might say, I wish I had that person's days of life. Not just length of days, but maybe their relative ease or success or whatever it is. But you need to trust that God decreed your days exactly as he did for your good and his glory. God is a benevolent, caring father. His thoughts toward you are good. It is not just that God created everything and then sat back to see what would happen. It is that God decreed all things and is intimately involved in them all. The Lord counts all our days. He knows and carries us through every one of them. You hear that? Every one of them. Look at Psalm 56. Keep your hand there in Psalm 139. Look at Psalm 56 and look at verse 8. This psalm struck me as I was reading it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read verse 8. You have kept count. This is being sung to the Lord. You have kept count. This is David in suffering, by the way. Kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Or are they not in your book? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? I think of the person awake at night, tossing, crying, wondering, does the Lord care? And here's David saying, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You keep count of my tossings. The Lord is right there with you, right there with you. He doesn't miss one tossing nor one tear. He cares about them all together. He knows them and sees them and has specifically designed them for you and your good. Look at Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, now pay attention to this, and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. He's multiplied his wondrous deeds. These are the, this idea of these mighty saving acts and his thoughts. These are thoughts for good. He's multiplied his mighty saving acts and his thoughts for good toward you. None can compare with him. None can compare with him. Turn back to Psalm 139. I want you to see how David responds to this knowledge of God as good to him as his creator and provider. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. You can see why they would be precious to him, can't you? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Not how intellectually satisfying is your omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, creator and provider. I think I'll give another lecture. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. In other words, you guys know what the sand's like. I can't even count up your thoughts toward me. Grab a handful of sand and try to count the grains of it, let alone all of it. You understand what David's saying here? Look how he concludes this. I awake and I'm still with you. God is our Father who knows, who is near to us, who is working all things together for our good. So how do we respond? How do we respond to that? 
Perhaps the simple answer is to say that we respond in worship. We yearn for God's glory to be seen and known and rejoiced in. We worship him, we tell of him, we sing of him, we praise him. But more specifically, David teaches us really to yearn for God's glory in two ways that I want to look at briefly. One, he teaches us to yearn for God's glory, to sing of God's glory in justice. That's the first way. And secondly, to yearn for, to sing of God's glory in grace. So let's talk about yearning for, singing God's glory in justice. Look at Psalm 139, verse 19. And it's like this startling transition. I want you to see it. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. What kind of transition is that? You just told me how precious are your thoughts toward us, O God. And then he turns and says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. That's who they speak against the Lord. Your enemies take your name in vain. In other words, these enemies of David actually said, We're doing righteousness as they are doing evil. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. It's like the person who says, God bless America and let's get to more abortions. They take your name in vain. It's like the politician who stands at the prayer breakfast and says, I know that the speaker just said that God says to love our enemies, but I think God is wrong, and then berates his political opponents. They take your name in vain. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Why such a stark contrast? Because it's startling. It's startling in a sense that's nearly, it just feels offensive. And I think what David wants you to get a hold of is it's as if his eyes have been gazing into the glories of heaven, seeing who God is. And now they look down upon the grotesqueness of sin on the earth. All that he now sees on earth, he sees in the light of God's glory. He sees how God's holiness stands in such stark contrast with man's wickedness. In other words, he seems to be being realistic. This is not really about David's hatred for man so much as it is about David's zeal for the Lord's glory. John Gill, very historic Baptist theologian, states it this way. Good men hate evil men, not as men, as the creatures of God, and as their fellow creatures, whom they are taught by the gospel to love, to do good unto, and pray for, but as haters of God, and because they are so, not their persons, but their works. And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee, as wicked men do, in their hearts, in their words, and in their actions? They rebel against God and contend with him, which is folly and madness. And this is grieving to good men because of their insolence and impudence, the ruin and destruction they expose themselves to, and the dishonor done to God. And this arises from their great love and strong affection for him, not being able to bear such behavior toward him, as a man is filled with grief and indignation when another rises up against his father or his friend. That's what's happening here with David. He's seen who his father is, and then he sees men rising up against them, and he's filled with indignation, and he wants justice. Those who love the Lord love what he loves and hate what he hates. We hate whatever offends our God, and we hate that with complete hatred. I hate them with complete hatred, verse 22. I count them my enemies. 
Now, I've dealt with the theme of justice last week in Psalm 94. You're free to go back and listen to that. Here, I just want you to grasp the point that as Christians, we yearn for God's glory in justice. We do. We want his righteous judgment to prevail. We want his glory to spread across the earth, both in justice and in grace, which leads to my second point, yearning for God's glory in grace. Look at verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. What's interesting here is that word thoughts should probably be translated cares or anxious thoughts. Thoughts is not like just try me and know some random things I'm thinking, but try me and know my anxieties, my cares. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Note that David wants God to know his anxieties and his cares. He wants him to know them. He's turned the Lord's gaze from the sin of his enemies to his own sin. Did you catch that? It's not that David just comes down from this vision of who God is to saying, here's how sinful, wicked men out there are. Now he turns to his own sin. David wants the Lord to see his sin and to lead him to walk in the way everlasting. That's the language that Jeremiah 6.16 references, the ancient paths, or that you really see summed up in Psalm 1, the way of the blessed man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He wants to be like that man. I want to think about that together. David wants the Lord to care for him in his anxiety and welcomes the Lord seeing his anxiety and the grievous ways in him. The point here is not that David sees no sin in his anxious thoughts. Please hear that. Somehow, we have bought into some psychologized idea that when you have anxious thoughts, that's not necessarily sin. Because you can't always control what your body may press on you somehow absolves you from sinful, anxious thinking. It doesn't. David doesn't believe he's absolved from that. He actually says to the Lord, see if there's any grievous way in me. David is a fallen man. David is a man who's conceived in sin. David is a man who's violated God's law. And David knows that the Lord searches him out. And when the Lord searches him out, he knows the Lord will find grievous sins and anxieties in him. See, I hear some in the Christian ministry world telling suffering folks that there is no sin in anxiety or no sin in distrust before the Lord. They argue there's no sin in telling the Lord that you're angry with him, that there's no sin in telling him that you're bitter about the days which he's formed for you. That's just utterly false. It is sinful to have anxious thoughts. It is wrong to distrust the Lord. It is idolatrous to rail against God's decree as if you know better, and it is blasphemous to curse the God who made you and decreed each of your days. So here's the question. If David is a sinner, like those that he trusts God to exercise his justice against in verses 19 through 22, how can he pray or sing that he wants God to see his own sin and anxiety, to know his own heart and his own thoughts? You guys ever stopped and consider the question? Do you really want to pray? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Do you really want to pray that? See if there's any grievous way in me. What do you think the Lord's going to find? Just treasures of godliness? 
But David prays that. So how can he do that? How can he call for justice against his enemies? Slay the wicked. And then turn around and say, now search out my sinful heart and not be scared to death. Here's the simple answer. Because David knows the covenant grace of God. He knows God's covenant promises to save all those who look to the promised Christ. And he rests in the Lord. Even in the midst of his anxious thoughts, even in the midst of sinful distrust, what is interesting is that I think when we teach in a manner that removes the sting of sin and the condemnation of the law, we also diminish the glorious grace of the gospel, don't we? We diminish it. I think people are afraid to see their anxieties, their anxious thoughts as sin, because they don't know how gracious God really is. You see, David is a type of the Christ. David sang this song. We sing this psalm. But the Lord Jesus himself sang this song. When Jesus sang Psalm 139, 23 through 24, he sang it as one who had no sin. There was no grievous way in him. He sang it as the one who is the blessed man of Psalm 1. And he sang it as the one who took our sins upon himself on the cross. See, Jesus sang, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, as the one who was slain in the place of the wicked. Jesus' cross is where God's justice and grace shine forth for the whole world to see. Justice for the wicked was poured out on the one, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him all you would know is grace. Grace. Thus we can sing this psalm to the Father knowing he cares for us. We can come to him and praise him as those reconciled to the Father and saved by the work of his Son. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would trust your Son, Jesus, that we would know that you know us, that your thoughts toward us are for our good, that we would know that you are ever with us, that you lead us, that you hold us by the right hand. You will not let us go. Father, may we know that you're the God who is able to do all things, who's created us for your good purposes, for our good. You've designed us, that you have decreed every one of our days when there was not yet one of them. How precious to us are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. We pray that we would be a people who want to bring you glory, who want to see you glorified in justice and in grace. And we give thanks that we see the pinnacle of your glory and justice and grace in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give thanks that by your spirit, we have, through faith, been reconciled to you through Jesus. We pray that we would trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.